From NBC5 and the Dallas Morning News, this is the Lone Star Politics Podcast. I'm Chris Blake. It's a new week, but the same realities when it comes to COVID-19. Cases and hospitalizations continue to rise across the state, but Texas is expected to receive its first doses of a vaccine this week. In the meantime, the state legislature is preparing for its next session in January and will take new pandemic-induced precautions. And in runoff elections last week, two North Texas cities made history. This week, Julie Fine and Gromer Jeffers talked to Nim Kidd, the chief of the Texas Department of Emergency Management, State Representative John Turner, a Democrat from Dallas, and Denton Mayor-elect Gerard Hudspeth, who will become the first black mayor of the city, which was incorporated in 1866. The FDA has granted emergency authorization for Pfizer's coronavirus vaccine, giving the green light for states to start distributing it. First in line in Texas, healthcare workers, and those who are most vulnerable. The first doses of the vaccine are slated to arrive in the state this week. The Texas Department of State Health Services says the first shipment will include nearly 225,000 doses, with 1.4 million ultimately on the way. Nim Kidd is the chief of the Texas Department of Emergency Management, a position he's held since 2010. He will have a big hand in the rollout of the vaccine. But vaccine distribution isn't the only logistical challenge facing Texas right now. Hospitals across the state are quickly filling up, and the North Texas area hit Governor Greg Abbott's threshold for rollbacks on December 3rd. That marker came after seven straight days on which the percentage of COVID-19 patients in area hospitals topped 15%. For bars to reopen and for non-essential businesses to increase capacity back to 75%, the region's trauma service area must collectively dip back below 15% for seven days in a row. So to help explain what all of that means, here's Nim Kidd with Julian Gromer. Thanks so much for joining us, Chief. Hey, good morning. It's good to be with you both. Tell us the latest on the distribution plans. Who will be getting it first and what's that order? Yes, ma'am. And you know, as we've seen over the week, FDA is moving pretty quick to make this emergency use authorization to get it out. Once that happens, distribution of the vaccine will go out across various methods. In Texas, we have about 109 locations that are going to receive it first. And I think it's important that our viewers and, and readers understand this first dose of vaccine is going to be a very safe vaccine first and foremost, but it comes with some unique challenges that we don't always see with other vaccines, like the lot size that it comes in as well as the temperature that it has to be held at. And so there are going to be questions, why did this vaccine go to certain locations? Those questions will be answered by those facts, the fact that it comes in boxes of a certain size that have to be kept at a certain temperature and a certain degree before it is pulled out, reconstituted, and then stuck in an arm for immunization. So, Chief, any idea how long it will take for anyone who wants to get the vaccine to get it? Is there a target date that you guys have? Gromer, that, that's a really important question. I think it's, it's pretty wide. Let me narrow it down just okay. a little bit. As we've worked with our expert vaccine allocation panel and following some of the uh, guidance from our federal partners, we believe that the healthcare workers that are in ICUs, in hospitals, and in emergency rooms treating known positive patients of COVID-19 will be some of the first to receive this vaccine. We believe that within hours to, to a day, day and a half of the vaccine showing up at these hospitals and facilities where it's being shipped to, you'll start seeing folks getting that immunization. Now, as time goes on and we spread out and more vaccine in the coming weeks comes available, we do believe we'll have a million and a half doses in the state before the end of the calendar year. Now, that's two different kinds of vaccines, so that'll be very important that we talk about those separately. 
but as the vaccines come out and go in, we will take care of our healthcare workers that are on the front line first, and then we're gonna to go to our most vulnerable population. When you look at the statistics, one thing that has been common across our state is that the people that are dying from this are those in the age category of 65 and older. And that's the thing that we want to prevent. We want to prevent deaths. We believe this vaccine is the path to help us do that. So Chief, if, if I have a, con if, if someone has a medical condition or, or something where they, what they feel like they need to get, to get the vaccine, should they just keep in touch with their doctor or what kind of communication or information is out there for the average resident to know, hey, can I, where and, and, and when can I get the vaccine? Yeah, and, and Gromer, as we are moving at warp speed with a lot of this, I realize there may be some healthcare workers out on the front lines that don't have the same amount of information that you have or that may, I may have because they're working around the clock and don't have time to keep up with all the press and the news reports out of this. So the way that we will continue to share that communication is through our official channels, working back with mayors and county judges that we had a call with over this last week and working with our healthcare systems, which we've also had several calls with. As the vaccine is out and distributed, we want our frontline healthcare workers to know that their employers are gonna be the ones immunizing them first. We think that's the best course of action. And we know several of our hospitals across the state have already had uh, vaccine plans in place for many years. They do exercises, some of them annually, for flu vaccine. And they use that flu vaccination process as a way to test their system for situations just like this. So we believe this first round of vaccine distribution is gonna go very quick and very smooth. When you get to the later rounds, is there planning yet underway once you get through the frontline workers in the healthcare or in the nursing homes, excuse me, is there a plan for people how they're going to find out, hey, my number's up or it's time for me? Absolutely, and we're working with uh, the governor and the commissioner of health's expert vaccine allocation panel. It's a 17 member panel that has several physicians, several public health professionals, some emergency management folks, as well as representatives from the associations of healthcare and nursing and pharmacy. And the goal is to bring them together and come up with truly expert recommendations. Now, not all of those recommendations have been made yet because we wanna be very sure of the doses that we're going to receive. And until we actually see the emergency use authorization and can decipher that information, we don't know which category or groups of peoples that we will be able to, to inoculate or to, to vaccinate. And so we know this first Pfizer, we've been able to see some of the data on it as it's come out over the last several days. We know that the healthcare workers, very good opportunity, very good target population for that group. But as we see the third and fourth vaccines come up, we wanna make sure that we're making the right vaccine available to the right person in the safest manner possible. Chief, the hospital capacity is very full right now in many places. What are the latest plans to give people the care they need? And Groma, we're gonna keep doing what we have been doing. We've watched the state as it's not a one size fits all state, it's a big state. And we've had various components or various geographic regions of our state in different levels of hospital capacity at different times. You know, we've, we've seen the Dallas area early on get to capacity and then our hospital partners quickly added additional capacity. We've seen out in El Paso hospital capacity get to a premium out there. And we brought in mobile medical units like the one that's behind me right now to be able to help offset some of that hospital capacity. This week, we have over 10,000 contract healthcare workers out on the front line supporting our hospitals and nursing homes across this state. You know, Governor Abbott's made it very clear we will continue to bring in additional staff as needed and we'll continue to support our hospitals. We're having weekly calls with hospital administrators across the state to make sure that we have the right PPE, 
the right medications and the right people to support them. Chief, before we let you go, what is your message to Texans about being safe, staying safe and vigilant even though that vaccine is on the way? You know, uh, it wasn't that many years ago that uh, as we were riding around, we didn't really have to wear seatbelts in our car. The, the models of cars, whenever I was a kid growing up, didn't have all the safety features that the vehicles that we drive today do. But because I have all of those safety features doesn't mean I can drive reckless. And so as we've got to continue, we've got the vaccine coming out, we've got some great therapeutics that are on the market right now that are helping reduce and eliminate a lot of the side effects or the, uh, the need of this, of this disease that's out there. We've absolutely got to make sure that we keep following the best practices for public health. And right now they are still wear the mask, wash your hands, socially distance, try not to be around people outside of your immediate family if you can help from it. I mean, it, it, this is going to take us weeks to months to get enough of the people vaccinated so that we can really turn the corner on this. And between now and then, we still need to follow the things that have been working for us from the beginning. Nim Kidd, Chief of the Texas Division of Emergency Management, thank you so much for joining us, especially at this really busy time for you. Thank you both very much for helping us get this message out. If you want to see the data on hospitalizations, new cases, positivity rate, and more, visit NBCDFW.com and click on the COVID-19 tracker. With the state's 87th legislative session set to begin in January, lawmakers are working out the details of the COVID-19 safety precautions they'll take. The presumptive Speaker of the House, Dade Phelan, a Republican from Beaumont, appointed a bipartisan work group to review the recommendations. John Turner, a Democrat from Dallas, represents the state's 114th district and is a part of that group. Turner's district runs mostly along the south side of 635 from Webb Chapel Road to Jupiter Road. It includes the Galleria, plus the Lake Highlands and Preston Hollow neighborhoods. Turner talks to Julian Gromer about the safety precautions and the priorities of the legislature in 2021. Representative, what's been done so far and what were some of the ideas from that group? Well, the working group has had several virtual meetings and it's not a formal committee uh, with the power to make any rules, but it is a group intended to talk informally about these issues so we can guide our rulemaking process once the session begins in January. And so far, some of the big topics have been the sort of things you would expect, uh, things like uh, testing for members and staff and others participating in the legislative process, uh, mask wearing requirements, uh, whether we will be able to have remote committee hearings and committee meetings, as well as possible remote voting on the floor of the House. Uh, those are some of the big topics that have been discussed. And, and uh, really, we're in the process, I think, now of trying to convert some of those thoughts into actual proposals for rules. And then when we convene in January, we'll decide what changes to make. Representative, congratulations on your reelection, by the way. I haven't talked to you since November. Will there be a testing protocol in place? What does that look like? Who gets tested? Well, thank you, uh, Gromer. I appreciate that. Uh, yes, I think there will be uh, some form of testing in place. And uh, really, the key questions are going to be, who does that apply to? Uh, will it be required for members to be tested, for instance, uh, every week or a couple of times a week? Uh, will staff have to be tested? Uh, will uh, witnesses that testify in committees to the extent there is in-person testimony as opposed to virtual testimony, will, will uh, tests be required? I, I'm just one member, so I can really only speak for myself. I think there should be those kinds of requirements in this session, and I think there's a decent chance that the legislature as a whole will conclude that we should have testing in place. We'll have to hammer out the details. 
of exactly how often uh, it will be. I think there's a good chance it will be rapid testing, so we'll be able to get results fairly soon. Uh, but we have to remember, we are responsible for the health and safety, not only of the members of the legislature, but everyone involved in the legislative process, including advocates and the public and, and all the workers in the Capitol and the Capitol area. So it's something we need to take seriously. You brought me right to my next question for the public who may want to be involved in hearings and legislation. How will they be able to do so safely? Well, for one thing, I personally uh, believe we should uh, have committee meetings happen virtually. You know, a lot of the public input to the legislative process happens in committee. And in an ordinary session, you have a lot of people come to Austin and testify in person about bills. We need to make sure, in my opinion, that we're giving people the opportunity to do that virtually. Um, I hope that will be the conclusion of the legislature uh, uh, to, to permit that. Uh, that's one important measure that I think would help public participation. And of course, we're going to continue to find ways to make sure that the legislature's activities uh, are fully open uh, to public scrutiny. Uh, now, whether all of that can happen in person, uh, it's not going to be the same this time. You're not going to have the same numbers of people descending on the Capitol and the same numbers of people uh, present in the gallery, and you shouldn't. Uh, so we're going to have to try to find the, uh, the right balance there. So, Representative, I talked to Charlie Guerin uh, over in Tarrant County uh, a couple of weeks ago, and he said that uh, the legislature should operate under the assumption that there will be some sort of outbreak, that this pandemic is not under, under control yet, and you have to prepare for that. Is that smart, you think? You know, I, I agree with my colleague, Charlie Guerin, on that, and he's the chair of the House Administration Committee. He's been having to work uh, during this interim period to make sure that procedures continue to be safe, even uh, at, the, at the Capitol and in the House, uh, without all of us there in session. And uh, he's right. Uh, we need to assume that uh, there could well be outbreaks and we need to be prepared uh, for that possibility. I mean, it's, it's um, uh, sad to have to talk about, but just the other day in New Hampshire, the incoming Speaker of the House died of COVID-19. Uh, you know, th this is real, uh, it's serious, and we've got to assume that when you have this many people coming together from all parts of the state uh, with the virus transmitting as it is, that risk is real, and uh, we've got to assume that uh, the, the transmission could occur. Representative Dade Phelan is the likely next speaker. He puts you in this working group. How do you envision him as a leader? Well, yes, and I, of course, I'm a Democrat, and uh, presumptive Speaker Phelan is a Republican, so obviously there are going to be uh, differences on policy and differences on votes and, and issues. Um, but of course, the Republicans still have a majority in the Texas House, and so we knew after the election on November 3rd that there would be a Republican speaker. And I think uh, despite our differences on issues, we, we've got to do our best as a legislature to come together for the good of Texas and try to accomplish some productive things for our state. Uh, so far, I think Presumptive Speaker Phelan is uh, trying to reach out to the whole House and get input from everybody and try to make clear that members will be able to move legislative priorities to the extent they are uh, able to gather support and, and work the issues and uh, be diligent and, uh, and, and do their homework. And so those are positive signs for me. I know there are going to be differences as we go, but uh, it's important to try to work together for the good of the state. And I I'm personally intend to give presumptive speaker feeling the opportunity to uh, show that he can do that. Before we let you go, Representative, uh, uh, give us your thoughts on Attorney General Kim Paxson's lawsuit or effort to go to the Supreme Court to challenge election results and uh, presidential election results in certain states. Well, in a word, uh, Gromer, uh, that lawsuit, I feel, is, is shameful. Uh, I think it's appalling that Attorney General Paxton has filed that lawsuit and has done so as an official act on behalf of the state of Texas. And 
And I'm very troubled to see the other states that have joined that lawsuit or, or uh, signed on in support of it. And uh, unfortunately, over 100 at this point, Republican members of Congress say they are supporting it. I mean, that lawsuit seeks to invalidate the election results in four other states. Uh, it seeks to overturn the results of the presidential election in effect. And I, I, I just think it's very troubling when we reach this point in our democracy. You know, if, if the losing party in an election cannot accept defeat, then we are in grave danger as a democracy. And unfortunately, I think real damage is being done by this lawsuit. Uh, I think it's something that public officials need to speak out on, really, whatever party you are. And uh, frankly, I think it's something the legislature needs to look at. Uh, I applaud my colleague, Chris Turner, who has re requested from the attorney general information about communications he said with the Trump campaign and with the Trump uh, White House and asked for what state resources have been used to file this, uh, this really meritless lawsuit that is harmful to our democracy. Representative John Turner, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate you being here. Thanks very much. I enjoyed it. Democrat Chris Turner of Arlington joined the show a couple weeks ago and also touched on the precautions the legislature is looking at. To hear that conversation, check out our podcast from November 29th. Two North Texas cities made history last week as Denton and Mansfield both elected their first black mayors. In Mansfield, Reverend Michael Evans defeated city council member Brent Newsom in the race to replace David Cook, who resigned to run for a Texas House seat, which he won. Evans is the pastor at the oldest black church in Tarrant County, Bethlehem Baptist Church, and becomes the first black mayor in the 130-year history of Mansfield. You know, when cities continue to evolve, they continue to grow, we learned that we have more in common than we do otherwise. In Denton, Gerard Hudspeth received 53% of the vote to defeat city council member Keeley Briggs to become that city's first black mayor. Hudspeth served two terms on the council and was the mayor pro tem until mid-November. Hudspeth is a litigation consultant who attended Denton High School and the University of North Texas. Here he is with Julian Gromer. Joining us now is Gerard Hudspeth, and he will be the mayor of Denton, elected in the runoff. Thanks so much for being with us. Yes, no, thank you very much. Uh, yeah, very excited about the campaign uh, results and the opportunity to, to get to work. Not only did you win this election, you'll be the first African-American mayor in Denton. Yes, yeah, which is, it, it's interesting. Born and raised there, uh, obviously been through a lot in my hometown, and and I'd be remiss if I didn't tell you one of the interesting things. Now, we've not had kind of some of the issues some other communities have had, but I'll tell you this one note that I mentioned uh, periodically during the campaign trail. So my, my mom and dad, both uh, Black, African-American, and um, the county document that for my birth certificate comes from the Denton County, from the county clerk, uh, reads uh, not, not Black, not uh, African-American, but reads Negroid. And that's 1972. And so that county document uh, that I, I just went to DPS to renew my license and, and race, and that race box, it says Negroid. Uh, so we've come a long way here in Denton County and in Denton. Uh, but there's, you know, we, it's, it's still, there's just challenges and stuff that just goes, uh, this kind of routine that hopefully I'll have an opportunity to point out. And that's 1972. That's like, after, well, the movement continues, right? But that's after the, the traditional civil rights movement and all of that, and, and, and wow. Yes. Must have been surprising to see that. But tell me, 
how you talk about being born and raised there. And, and I, I don't know if you, when you were a little kid, you, you imagine yourself being mayor, but how has the city changed? You know, you talked about a little of the, of the change, but how has it changed since you were a little a kid running around the streets of Denton until now? Yes, no, I think it, it, it's done a pretty good job staying kind of true to its culture and its kind of small town feel. It's, right. it's just the, 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 the things that have changed are, it's really kind of in function, right? You used to be able to drive from one end of town to the other in 10 minutes and that, that's long gone. You, you know, you used to know people a little different. Uh, and so there's there's kind of those, it's it's had some growing pains. We go from when I graduated one high school to now we have four. And, and so that's more kids, that's less relationship, right? You don't see the other kids as much, more competition, uh, those type things. So it's just, you've seen growth trends and, and consequences of growth. Um, and at the same time, it, it's still, um, my wife texts the uh, police chief the other day. So it still has its kind of small feel like, you know, in Dallas, that's probably not happening. In Fort Worth, that's likely not happening. But, but so you still had that connectivity uh, as a small town, but the, some, of, kind of, some of the things in just function have changed. What do you think is the biggest challenge walking into this job? You know, I think the biggest challenge is financial first. You know, we, 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 the, the financial issue hits across a lot of different uh, categories. For example, we're talking low and moderate, uh, low and uh, median income. Then all of a sudden, we, you know, it's harder to balance those books and, and give help. You have the, the uh, there's one of my soon to be peers again that, that's advocating for Denton to take a step like Austin did and prohibit um, um, the evictions. But really, I think for me, it's an education component. I'm going to be a mayor that stays in uh, the city of Denton's lane. I don't want to run the Denton County. I don't want to manage the universities. I want to. I want to be the. Um, I want to focus on the city of Denton, and that presents challenges. So that's an education thing to tell to to tell the voters uh, if you want to uh, prevent. Um, evictions, you need to go talk to your county constable and you need to go talk to your justice of the peace. But all, you know, but the city of Denton candidates and elected officials are local and, and have a different connection with the with the um, citizens. And so they that's their first stop. And so that's an education component when some and that's a tough conversation to say, I hear you. I understand your concern and your fears, but you're, you have to place that in the right, um, we have to talk to the right entity to affect change. With, with all the growth in, in Denton and, and the surrounding area, how do you keep that small town feel? And it sounds like you like it like that. Great question, great question. So to keep the small town feel, I think it's about not saying yes to everything, right? There's some core things we need. And, and, and so, uh, for example, I, I, I rarely do I inject my own desires, but I'll, I'll and, and normally I'll put, <laughs> but I'm gonna I'm I'm take front, <laughs> take front row just in case someone's listening that I don't normally get to. Didn't need to Apple store. <laughs> so just in case this, I'm certain this, 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 there's greater reach here. So I'm advocating on, on your platform. 
but no, so those things, right? So I think it's if we can get strategic, uh, like the Buckies coming to Denton was huge for me. You know, that's Texas, you know, in Texas OU weekend a couple of years ago, OU's football team stops in Denton. There's people that it brings different people to Denton. So I think those kind of key, um, those kind of key businesses in Denton is how you can grow. You 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 have growth, but you you don't allow you know, any and everything, it's kind of select um, needs for the community. So let's talk a little bit about the pandemic. How do you help people with that? Yeah, no, that, that's tough. Really, you know, it goes back to the education component. And this is going to be really, this may sound a little different, but right now in the campaign process, developers and uh commercial real estate and these type businesses were hammered. You know, you get the PAC money and all these kind of different conversations. Well, but they're, they're key. They're a key component to us bouncing back after the pandemic. We have to have people that have money to reinvest money uh, in our community. And so we can't make them the bad guy or bad girls. They are bad women. They have to be the ones that, that help us grow out of this. And so for me, it's going to be embracing those wealthier institutions or people that have capital that they can spend right away and embracing them and saying, hey, here's someone that's going to help invest in our community. And here's why we should come alongside and partner with them. When I was on council before, I, I, I was notorious for it. So it's not it's not news to those that watch me. I, I, I come from a sales background. I've transitioned now, but I, I'm willing to sell you know, and, and have the city partner with people and, and have people uh, sponsor things probably at a, at a greater level than most. But I think it's important just to understand the limits of the city and, and how slow it turns, right? And so it's important to, to have maybe partnerships. If we're looking for a park uh, in this time where we're trying to free up budget, it, it may be wise to partner with a company that can say, hey, we can turn dirt tomorrow and work with you and, and then we'll, we'll you know, uh, take care of the streets or something that we do regularly. So just getting creative about how we can have public and private partnerships and, and benefit the citizens at the end of the day. Uh, maintaining integrity, transparency, all those things, financial integrity, but at the same time, um, understanding we have budget restrictions and, and trying to get the most uh, we can without raising taxes. So, so you made history, and, and like it or not, you're a trailblazer now. Did anyone say anything to you that about that, about that history that stands out? You know, uh, no, but I, I, I'll tell you this. It didn't hit me until late. It, it truly did not. It was about, um, uh, let's say we campaigned for nine months. I, I would say it hit me about month seven. Uh, <laughs> I mean, just did not think about it. Uh, and, and it wasn't something we could campaign on because I, I just didn't feel comfortable right, right. doing so. And so um, really it was a revelation probably towards the end, a month or so before the, so when we get into the runoff period, I started to think that my, my daughter who is my, my oldest daughter at home is 10. And so her kids are, are there, you know, to have that opportunity to reflect and say, remember when, you know, or I was there when. And so that was really, um, it touched me. Uh, and then I was in city hall chambers uh, for the swearing in of my, the person that took my seat 
And there's a picture of the first woman uh, that was elected to Denton City Council. And then you kind of understand the gravity of it in a new way, too. I mean, it's, it's something that's going to be memorialized and, and documented in a different way. Uh, and so that was neat. And then just the, just the logistics of it, it, it kind of um, makes me um, pause for a second. I mean, Denton is 85, 90% white. And so you have, I have to communicate in a different way. I mean, and I don't know that many people, I mean, uh, there's the, not everyone understands that. You don't understand the scrutiny from both sides, right? I get the, I've gotten the messages that, that lead in with coon and I've got the messages that lean in with the F word and ends, you know? And so, and so you get it, you get it from all sides. Uh, either you, you're either, you're either too black, not black enough, you know, and, and so it, it's a challenge to, to navigate those waters and be successful. And, and, and I have that conversation with people as they, they say, hey, you, you know, it's, it, I, I, I'm going long, but I'll just say, people say, oh, well, you're, you're the next mayor, you got to do what the mayor before you did. And I try to explain best I can, because, and here's where it pivots, it, it all circles around social media. Some people say, stay off social media as far as don't engage with people. And I'm trying to explain, I face different challenges than anyone else that's taken this position. Uh, and, and there's just things I have to deal with and, and suppress at a different level. And at some point you cannot continue to suppress them. I just can't, that's a design flaw for me maybe, but it's, it's tough. You're saying that it's tough, but your attitude about it seems just so up. Yes. No, it's 100% God. <laughs> you know, I'll tell you that for sure. But it, it, it truly is. I mean, because I, and, and because I think it's just something you have to deal with your entire life. It, and it was interesting when we talked about during the middle of our campaign, you have the George Floyd uh, tragedy. And, and what it, that affected me more than I expected because normally you there's challenges you face daily and you just go through them right it's just there's things that everyone does that are challenges and you just hey this is part of my routine i have to do it this is just you know part of it well but that incident forced me to focus on just the the concerns i mean and it's everything i mean for example i'm a nervous wreck campaigning in this period of time hanging door hangers on the door my my peers don't have to worry about that but it's seven at night and it's dark outside and I'm putting this door hanger on your door. And if I jiggle the door wrong, this could go bad really quick. <laughs> you know, and, and those are just things that people don't, maybe don't pay attention to. And so it really affects, different, affects me differently, uh, but you try to push it aside, but the emotion side of it is, is, is tough, but you just, you're so used to dealing with it. Uh, you just, you manage, right? And, and so it's only when you stop and focus on it. And I'll, I'll give you one, one other note on that. In the Bishop Arts District, there's a piece of art that really, uh, it moved me to tears. Uh, there's a crayon box and it has all the different colors in it kind of falling out. But then on, on each color, it just says flesh. And so that I didn't expect, I don't cry, but that just touched me so much to say, hey, we're at the end of the day, we're all people. We're all trying to do the best we can, irrespective of color. And it's just a really cool piece of art that spoke to me. Right. 
and come up with a better note to leave this on. So thank you so much for being with us for our podcast. Yes, no, thank you for the invitation. Always a pleasure. Look forward to talking to you soon. Julie reported last week after the historic victories for Evans and Hudspeth. Check out that piece at NBCDFW.com. Thanks to NIMKID, Representative John Turner, and Mayor-elect Gerard Hudspeth for joining us this week. Stay up to date on everything related to Texas politics at NBCDFW.com slash Lone Star Politics. We'll talk to you next week.